there's this parable in the teachings that says that there's two arrows to an emotional experience, two arrows that go into you. And the first one is like the inevitable pain that mm -hmm. exists in this emotional experience, like grief. Yeah. And then the second arrow, which you have a choice in, is the suffering. And the suffering is, is how I see it play out as a therapist. Is So I feel the pain. And then this belief that the pain is going to be this way forever. Yeah. And so learning how to be with the pain and managing and caring for the thought that comes up, which is so human and understandable that it's going to be this way forever. Mm -hmm. And gently challenging that. Mm. Or even just being with it until it fades. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey friends, it's time for another episode of the Living Centered Podcast. Today, I'm so excited because I get to introduce you to another one of the incredible clinicians that join us at Onsite week in and week out to lead our programs and intensives. As an added bonus, I got to bring on my friend and coworker, Hannah Warren, as the sitting co-host while Lindsay is out on maternity leave with baby Ben. So I'm just so excited for this episode today, and I'm excited for you to meet our guest, Caroline Bravo. The three of us had one of my favorite conversations that I've had in a really long time. And I think we would have talked even if the microphones weren't on. To be honest, we actually kept talking for a really long time after the microphones turned off. But it was just such a beautiful conversation. We talked all about suffering and grief and how we can be more gentle and compassionate with the parts of ourselves that are impacted by the pain of our stories. Caroline was gracious about sharing her own personal journey and some of the things in her own life that have brought her suffering and grief and how the tools and rhythms of Buddhism have really helped her along the way. I loved having Hannah as my co-host, and I think you're going to love her just as much as I do. Caroline is a therapist who is a part of a private practice here in Nashville called Sessions. As often as she gets the chance, she works as an adjunct therapist, as an on-site guide, doing intensives with both individuals and couples. And a big part of her practice is mindfulness work. So I want to make sure that you stick around to the end of the episode because Caroline led us through a grounding mindfulness practice that I really think you're going to want to take part in. So without further ado, Caroline Bravo. Welcome, everyone. We're so excited that you're here, and I am so excited to be sitting with Caroline. Caroline, you are an on-site guide, and I have gotten to know you a little bit, but I'm just so excited to, one, have this opportunity to get to know you a little bit more, and then for our audience to get to know you. Yeah, that sounds lovely. Well, I'm so coming. grateful to be here. I was, like, truly honored that I was asked to come do this, and so thank you. It means a lot to me. I, I love on-site a lot. So um, getting to come and, and maybe part, I'm speaking for myself, but I feel like I'm also speaking for onsite mm -hmm. in this interview. So I'm, I'm really grateful. Yeah. Thank you. And a lot of our podcast episodes, I love them all. We have such amazing guests, but I really do love the ones where we get to bring on guides the most because yeah. I feel like it's um, such a vibrant conversation and such a good depiction of the heart of our company. And mm -hmm. um, you are someone that I think really embodies a lot of what we do. And I know you're kind of newish to on-site world, yeah. um, but I haven't spent a ton of time with you, but the time I have, you've just really been like a living, breathing representation of what we do and our values of resilience and um, compassion and self-awareness and all of that too. So I'm excited to get to know you more. You made me cry. Yeah. Thank you. That's very sweet. Yeah, I was like, 
I think listening to the a previous episode, sharing the messy middle, mm-hmm. um, I have such reverence for therapists that I trained with, like Carlos, Mark, mm. Mary, and Courtney, and feeling like also feeling nervous about coming here because I wanted to like quote air quotes like mm. deliver, but knowing yeah. that um, I get to do that by just showing up and being me. So yeah, I kind of like unburden that part of me as Mm. often as I need to in this episode. But I I really do appreciate you having me here. Yeah. And those are all amazing clinicians. They are. But you are also an amazing human and someone that we want to learn from and learn with. And I think sometimes we get this misconception that therapists are like, have it all together and sitting in their Zen process. And so (laughs) I love that what we do a lot on the Living Center podcast is kind of pull back the curtain and show that we're all human. We're all in process. And it is how we choose to use the tools that we're equipped with and find new tools uh, to move forward and to make sense of that. So Yeah. Just to speak to that for a moment, mm-hmm. I thought about this yesterday. It's interesting learning in school in particular how to be a therapist. Yeah. And there's this element of um, making sure that the curtain is there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's to protect the client so that yeah. the client can have their own process. But this element of like non-disclosure yeah. uh, as a therapist has been an interesting learning curve as I develop. Yeah. But Onsite was the first place that kind of offered to pull back the curtain and it's okay. Mm-hmm. And I think Mark said something to the effect of share your scars, not your wounds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, I j- it was very freeing because before a therapist, I'm a human mm-hmm. and I love to show my humanness. Mm-hmm. But it's a learning curve, you know, when I want to share my humanness, watching the discomfort that comes up and then saying it's okay. Yeah. They yeah. need this too. Yeah. I love that distinction. The scars, not the wounds, mm-hmm. because you're doing it from a healthy place. And that is helpful to your client rather than coming in activated or with something yeah. you're still very much in the process of. Yes. Yeah. Totally. I think it's helpful and hopeful because yes. then people can see themselves and see like, oh, I also get yeah. to learn and grow and heal. Um, what a part I love about seeing therapists as humans is that I think we're always on a mission to like destigmatize mental health and therapy and all mm-hmm. of that. But I think even just the humanization of therapists helps put people who are going to therapy back in their own hero seat because yeah. then it's like you're not going to save me you're not here to fix me my <sighs> therapist doesn't have all the answers yes but you and why we call you guys guides at onsite is because you guide people yes. um, to their own healing to their own self-discovery to their own self-compassion and so I love that the, the more I get to know my own personal therapist I'm like oh you're just a human and you don't have all my answers and I can't mm. go to you for all my answers mm. but you can come alongside me as I find them within myself and so I think as we that's why I love these conversations with therapists because it puts people who are stepping into the their own arena of their own mental health work into their own hero space that they get to show up and they get to like help find their own healing you know I don't think I could have said it better it was beautifully said it's so true yes to Mm. all of that Mm. so you mentioned kind of your own training and how did you end up in that seat as a therapist Hmm. so I think that from a young age my mom always did a very good job at teaching my brother and I like how to talk about emotions. I think Mm. it started there. My mom was a good talker. Mm. But I would say that I've always been, Buddhism has been a big part of my journey and that it's a like contemplative practice. Mm -hmm. And so my dad, when I was about, I was probably 13, he was very much into, he was having a Buddhist phase um, and gave me a book. It was Deepak Chopra's, it's called The Buddha. And so 
not really seeking like a religious um, experience, but just like wanting to learn how to sit with my stuff. Mm. Yeah. Like these, I, I feel like I've always had like big emotions. In, in learning about Buddhism, I learned how to think about the mind. And then I also, I think simultaneously was very interested in, in yoga and learning stillness. Mm-hmm. And so from there, uh, that was kind of like the start. Mm. And, uh, and then f- my dad passed away when I was about 21. Mm-hmm. And so that was like my first experience with like big grief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And going to therapy for the first time and actually very much not liking it. I think I went mm-hmm. to one session and then I was out. And I think that was because it was so intimate. And that was the first like, yeah. true experience of intimacy that I'd ever had. At, like, yeah. I think I was, yeah, I was 21. And then learning in deciding to like, I was studying psychology and then learning about a beautiful fellow called Carl Rogers, who is like the father of humanistic therapy mm-hmm. and learning that he says that we help people heal by just being with them in a space that is non-judgmental mm-hmm. and open and um, kind of holding the space of seeing the best in them at yeah. all times, especially when they're in their wounds. And that is what is healing. And I was like, mm. oh, I need that for myself. Mm-hmm. And I think I can do that. And then just kind of like falling into therapy and <laughs> loving it. And so that's kind of like the condensed version of my story. Yeah. I was like struck at the 13 mm-hmm. year old finding those tools to sit with your big emotions Hmm. because I just remember being 13 and everything felt so big. And so to be in a home where you were like, okay, let's talk about our emotions. One, that feels really rare in itself. Yeah. And then two, going down that road. Like when I sit with you, I feel very much like you are a peaceful presence. Like Mm. you seem like you are someone who has done the work to be at peace with yourself. Mm. Just even the way that you talk and you're measured. And so I just would love to hear a little bit more about that process. Like a 13 year old girl discovering Buddhism and learning about the mind and learning how to be with your big emotions. Sure. Um, Thank you. That makes my heart feel so good. Well, so uh, maybe a little bit of context of like... (laughs) Shiloh. My dog is snoring. <laughs> oh, it's just so sweet. I don't think it'll pick it up. It's it is just... also peaceful. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I think it like is so uh, humble. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess like a little bit of context with Buddhism is that as a contemplative practice, it's mm-hmm. the, the, the base, the, the first teaching is really that um, this isn't a very good like translation, but Mm -hmm. it says that life is suffering. Mm. But what I think what the Buddha actually meant was that everything is always in a state of change and there is inherent beauty in that. But in these human bodies, we have a really hard time sitting with how things are impermanent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, growing up with a single mom and having big emotions, I think that at 13, I think I was plugged into this like suffering. Yeah. And so Buddhism was the first thing outside of my mom, um, but Buddhism was the first thing that taught me, like, this is here. Suffering is here and it's okay. There's a way around uh, through this. Mm. So that was kind of like, I think that was the the part that the 13-year-old just needed to hear. Like, this is suffering. Mm. A lot of this is very hard. Mm. But what is promised on the other side through the suffering is this inexplicable and invaluable peace and equanimity. Mm. And so, um, so yeah. I love that thread of suffering because it's so, 
central to humanity. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I don't know a ton about Buddhism and I, I don't practice it personally, but I have so much curiosity around it because of that piece, the suffering, mm-hmm. like centralness, because that is so human. Um, we obviously do a lot of work around grief and things like that mm-hmm. on site. And um, something we learned is that everyone grieves, everyone yes. has loss and pain. And so yeah. um, I think so many practices and so many people people's upbringings tend to look away from suffering. We yes. tend to say like, move on, buck up, let's go. Uh, yeah. Hide it over there. And yeah. I know um, even in a well-meaning household that I grew up in, it was something we did not want to look at. Sure. So it was very much like, it's going to be okay. Like, mm-hmm. let's, you're going to be tough, grow up, be strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love that um, Buddhism holds suffering with value and like as a teacher. Yes. Because um, I think that's so parallel to what... Uh, doing your own work needs to be, yeah. um, it needs to hold suffering. Cause we, you, you can't, we, we say, um, you can't heal if you don't feel. And so mm-hmm. we have to look back in order to look forward and we have to be able to sit in our own discomfort and our pain. And so I, I would love to learn more about, um, yeah, that practice in Buddhism. Cause it just feels so central to the healing process. And I love that you learned that from a young age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what comes up for me is this way of, um, feeling wisely, hmm. And it takes a lot of practice, but it's this idea yeah. and there's this parable in, in the teachings that says that there's two arrows to an emotional experience, two arrows that go into you. And the first one is like the inevitable uh, pain that mm-hmm. exists in this emotional experience, like grief. Yeah. Deep, some, and for some people, deep, deep grief. And then the second arrow, which you have a choice in, is the suffering and the suffering is, is how I see it play out as a therapist is so I feel the pain. And then this belief that the pain is going to be this way forever. Yeah. And so mm. uh, learning how to be with the pain and managing and caring for the thought that comes up, which is so human and understandable that it's going to be this way forever mm-hmm. and gently challenging that mm. or even just being with it until it fades. Yeah. You can just be with the grief. I think that experience of it being this way forever also also fades. Mm. I feel like that's a really good lesson for us to learn right yeah. now in this moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everyone's grieving mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. um, and to have gain comfortability with it. Yeah, I'll share the story. Actually, it was when I was doing an intensive out on site. I was with a, a client that was, uh, we had prefaced the story by saying him and I had a lot of rapport. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I would have done this with a client that I didn't have as much rapport with, but yeah. we were outside painting um, and we were near the, the garden, the vegetable garden there. Yeah. And so he was just sitting and processing. He was in so much pain. and um, But there was a flavor of this pain will not go away. It's here forever. Yeah. And just being with him in that and uh, walking over to the vegetable garden. And um, I don't know where this idea came from, but I grabbed a jalapeno and I sat in front of him. And I said, let's in this moment just practice being with pain. Because I know that you're with pain already, mm-hmm. but let's let's crank it up a bit. And so we both took a bite. We broke it in half, and then we both took a bite of this jalapeno. And the idea was just to be with the pain, be with the physical pain in your mouth, and watch it change. Because mm-hmm. it did. It Being with the pain didn't necessarily make it go away, but you got to watch the changing of the pain, which I think this this the mm-hmm. parable of the two arrows is that is that it it changes mm-hmm. over time and luckily with, with the jalapeno went away <laughs> but yeah 
watching the stories, it can create so much more suffering with the story of it. It will always be this way. This mm-hmm. burning in my mouth will always be here. Yeah. Wow. I yeah. That. That's, That's really such a cool. beautiful illustration of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was pretty intense, but I have so much love for this client that he was willing to do that with me. Mm. I feel like sometimes those simple things though are what leads to such breakthrough. Yeah. I think so. It was a very, like, it was a very somatic experience. Yeah. yeah. So maybe. I love that. I think a lot of um, what I know of mindfulness and things like that are somatic, but they are in our bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know that trauma is stored in our bodies, not just our brains. And so um, we need to be able to connect our bodies and our brains and our souls in order to heal. Um, Can you share a little bit more about like... And on site, we're faith inclusive. We welcome all faiths, all sure. backgrounds. But how has your Buddhism or your um, the practices that you've learned there, how has that informed how you lead as a guide, as a therapist, how you help lead others into curiosity into some of those practices? It's hmm. a good question. I think that um, it's, I think the first, what's coming up for me was the first, um, I first had to sit with knowing that this is my faith. It's it's not and it's a it's a, like a quality of knowing. It's not so much a faith, but mm-hmm. like knowing that uh, as a therapist, it is that my clients probably don't share this view, mm-hmm. and so knowing that it was it's Buddhism has really been for um, a way for me to navigate my stuff when I'm with clients. Mm, yeah, but then also learning over time that teaching clients to be with themselves despite incredible pain was helpful for them. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, I I think how it's best informed my practice. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes like um, when it's helpful and this more so is I think in my private practice because clients come to me because they know that I, I do mindfulness based counseling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, every now and then sharing parables, like the the two arrows Mm -hmm. um, can be really helpful. I Mm -hmm. think we learn through stories. Mm Mm-hmm. That's how it's informed my practice. It's good. Um, oh, oh. I have a curiosity. Okay, that, oh, you, go, you go. You go. Uh, Mine's kind of derailing a little bit. Okay. Um, I'm going back to the 13 year old you. Yes. My knowing your faith practice at age 13, Hannah, is so different than age today, Hannah. Mm. Um, and it's inspiring, and I have a, yeah, a lot of curiosity around mm-hmm. how that's evolved for you, because yeah. if you picked that up at, at 13, maybe you set it down and you came back to it later, but, but maybe you didn't. Maybe that's been a central theme for you. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you held these practices, beliefs, knowings, mm-hmm. um, and also mm-hmm. let yourself evolve in the process? Mm-hmm. I'd be really curious question, if you would share yeah. that. Thank you. Question. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that Buddhism has, like— this this belief system that I have is like served as a raft that mm-hmm. from the beginning, it, the, the teachings say, do not grasp too tightly to this raft mm-hmm. because you are wow. you are the you are the lighthouse. Mm. So what was interesting is that learning about this practice and staying with it and then at 21 losing uh, my father. Yeah. Well, I don't even know if I love that verbiage. My father, my father transitioning. Yeah. Um, my suffering was so great that I don't think anything could, he was my best friend. So mm. I don't think anything could have touched that suffering. And I, it was a, it was a time in my life where it's just like, I was, I was so in my parts, my wounded parts and my medicating that um, mm. it, it, 
I let it go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then going into my master's in counseling and being asked gently to look at these things, look yeah. at these things, because if you don't, you may cause harm. And that's also a big mm. part of mm-hmm. this practice is, is non-harm, non-harm to self and others. And so yeah. um, I was asked to figure out a way to look at my stuff. And this I really like the frame of 13-year-old me because 13-year-old me maybe was the part of me mm. that said, we have, we have, right. we have a tool here. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so, so leaning back into it and yeah, it's when I think about it th- throughout my history, it's like I, I have this, there's just this sweetness that mm-hmm. comes, mm-hmm. that comes with thinking about compassion practice and mindfulness based practice. And then moving to Nashville and finding um, a community that would just all sit together and, mm-hmm. and practice mm-hmm. and learn from each other. So that's, that's kind of how it's developed. Yeah. And what does that community look like? <sighs> So it's called um, it's called a sangha, which mm-hmm. is it's Buddhist for for community. Mm-hmm. And so I have a dear friend who's a therapist named Andrew Chapman, and he uh, built a sangha where everyone comes together, and he he and a few other teachers just teach about mindfulness and how to sit mm-hmm. um, because it's it's very hard to do this practice without some guidance, kind of mm-hmm. like therapy. Mm-hmm. Like you yeah. need you need a guide. So, um, so it was the first place that I lived. I've kind of moved all over, but it was the first place I lived where there was a community that sat together and learned together. Mm. I love that you said you had to like, look back at your 13 year old self and let her teach you something, remind you that you had the tools. Mm -hmm. And I think like how valuable that'd be for all of us to allow ourselves to do. Yeah, I think, um, I grew up too quick and don't really remember a lot of my childhood and don't look back at it with a lot, a lot of levity sometimes. Mm. Um, and I'm really relearning to, or I'm, I'm learning to tap into that childhood self a lot. And mm-hmm. if I could approach her with a lot more curiosity of like, what do you have to teach me? Mm-hmm. And especially around beliefs, I think sometimes I look back jaded or yeah. hurt or sad or disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's easier to call it all a wash and just say like, that's not serving me anymore. Yeah. Um, but if I could look at it with curiosity and say like, what parts are actually still really serving me? What parts mm-hmm. are here to help me? Mm-hmm. Um, and what can I learn from what was working for her then? Well, still work for me now and, mm. and permission to say like it maybe not yeah and, but maybe it does maybe yeah. it has something to teach me and I think we all could learn that whether in faith practices knowing practices or just sure. just your everyday life what does that part of you have to teach you for service of you today mm-hmm. no I love that That's I was beautiful. in a, um, a therapy session the other day and we were kind of talking about like what are the tools in your backpack my therapist talks a lot about like what's in your backpack and I pulled up an image, we're doing some EMDR, this is some vulnerableness, but I pulled up this image of myself and I had consistently looked at her with a lot of, um, I think, shame. Mm-hmm. Of like, I am so mad that I was ever her. I'm so mad that my anxiety took me to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just like often look at that image of myself of like, I'm so glad I'm not weak anymore. Ooh, mm-hmm. yeah. And by the end yeah. of the session, I started crying and I said, I would not be me without her. Mm-hmm. She taught me how to get up off the floor. She taught me that I am someone who gets up off the floor, who gets up off the mat and fights and is resilient. And I just was able to like sit with her and see her pain and to also say, I wouldn't not want to be you. Mm. Like it just was like such mm. a, yeah. in one moment, in one session, my therapist was able to bring so much compassion to myself yeah. in ways that I had never had. And so- I think 
what we teach at Onsite so often is that we want to look away from that. But it's the revisiting, I think, that helps us become even more of ourselves. Yes. Actually, no, that's who I am. And yeah. You know, bolstering up. Like, I am someone who does this. Yeah, I love that. Thanks for sharing. I think knowing you, too, like, I think not only does that allow you to say, like, yes, I am someone who's going to fight or get Mm -hmm. back up off the floor, but it gives you permission to say, like, and I don't have to do that right now. Right. I can actually be anxious because I know know I'm going to learn from this. I I have Mm -hmm. the resilience. I have the self-compassion and awareness to move forward because that's how we keep ourselves alive. Mm -hmm. Right. But anxiety isn't scary. It isn't. Mm-hmm. No. So in moments of anxiety where that comes up in adulthood still, like you can still sit with it and say mm-hmm. like, oh, this is teaching me. This is my body saying, pay attention. Yeah. And then know that you have what you need, you know? Yeah. I think so much of this conversation has been around like sitting with it, yes. sitting with your pain, recognizing it. And I think for so long I have the way that I'm wired and as an Enneagram seven, like I don't want to yes. sit with pain. I don't want to sit with hard things. I am a master at the reframe, at the spin, telling you this is how it could be good. And I feel like the most growth I've had has been in sitting with it, Mm -hmm. sitting with anxiety, sitting with grief, sitting with pain, sitting with uncomfortableness, and just saying like, like you were saying, like the pain doesn't last forever. I think if you had told me that three years ago, I would say that's not true. Yeah. Yes. Like if I'm feeling pain, it's going to be like this forever unless I do something to intervene. Yes. Hmm. But just letting the process evolve sometimes yeah. is the difference. Oh, it makes me want to share the, I really like the toolbox analogy, but mm-hmm. um, in relation to what we're talking about, I, I, have you guys talked about parts work on this episode? We have an episode with Laura Ramey. She talked a little bit about IFS. Yeah. Um, We'd love and you then, shared more though. Yes. And I would love yeah. to hear more about it. Madison mentioned it a little bit. I think it's something that we, it keeps coming up in so many different realms yeah. that I want to have another episode about IFS. I think we're going to have Laura back on. You want to give like a one sentence, yeah. like... What is yeah. parts work? What is parts work? Sure. So parts work is this idea that you are not a singular, the self is not singular. Yeah. The self is this beautiful uh, system of multiplicity. And so what that, how we use that is to say that, can you first acknowledge that there is this part of you called, the, they coin it the self, mm-hmm. but it's this part of you um, that is curious and mm. courageous and so loving and patient kind of the this this perfect adult self. It's like five or six C's? How many C's is it? Oh, I think it's five. Okay. But um but yeah, so the the, fir- the first part is recognizing that you have that, which for mm. some of us when we're in deep suffering is so hard mm-hmm. to come in contact with. Yeah. So kind of in the feeling where it is in your body. And I think for myself and a lot of my clients, it's right where the heart space is, right at the center of the body. Yeah. And then when you're having, um, when you're sitting, like, as you said, with anxiety and I'm in this experience of I can't leave it, mm-hmm. first acknowledging that and going, mm-hmm. okay, I'm noticing that I, I, I'm in it and I want to leave it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then trying to make contact with the self that says we are here mm-hmm. and it's okay. And I will be with you. It was the self saying to the anxious part, I'll be here with you. Yeah. It's okay. I don't need to change you. All, all parts are welcome here. Mm-hmm. And something happens, not every time, but I find more often than not, it's like the part kind of like sits back mm. and doesn't have to take the steering wheel uh, as strongly as it was. Yeah. And it's all of, it's first a mindfulness comp- practice because I have to notice that I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. And then the compassion of the self saying to the part, I see you, mm-hmm. I hear you, I care for you, yeah. but I'm not the same as you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I, that's beautiful. That's right. actually, I, I had never thought about parts work as almost an internal community. Yes. And like, mm. uh, I don't say we say you're wounded in community, so you have to heal in community. And that's why we we love the power of group work so much. But I've never thought about like the internal community of myself mm-hmm. and all those parts that, like you said, like, oh, that anxiety can sit back because it's safe. Like, okay, you're here with me. Uh, yes. And um, unfortunately, we can't always be with people, with mm-hmm. safe people. And I, I hope all these... I hope everyone has safe people that they yeah. can enter into those scary places with, but some people don't, a lot of people don't, and a lot of people don't have access all the time. And yes. so um, I love the idea of fostering parts work as a reminder that mm. like, oh, we actually have the things that are going to keep us safe. We have mm. the things that are going to come alongside yourself. us. Yeah. And so the like internal community that is parts work is a cool idea. Yeah. Oh, I that's love- a great analogy. <laughs> So, I was, yeah. well, what I have been saying this lately, because it's been resonating in my personal practice as mm-hmm. I like learn to sit with my parts and be with them and care for them and also negotiate with them. That's yeah. a part mm-hmm. of, because sometimes you'll sit with them and be with them and they won't let up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you have to learn how to talk with them and negotiate. But kind of saying that, that I have this a system, this ecosystem of parts and the space that exists in between the parts is uh, like um, compassion sometimes can be a big word. Like I mm. love these things. Like they're bringing right. me so much suffering. Yeah. So they're the, I have the system of parts and what the space in between the parts is just gentleness, mm. just a sense of like mm. tenderness and gentleness. And that is the self. Yeah. That's where the self exists. Hey friends, we just wanted to say thank you so much for listening And we are just so grateful for you and the way that you show up every week um, to join in on these fun conversations that we get to have. So we want to make the podcast the best that it can possibly be as we go into a new year. And we want to hear from you. Yeah, we really just hope that this is a resource that serves you where you are and that we're giving you what you want to hear. So we'll ask you, you know, about preferred length. We'll ask you about guests that you'd like to hear from, topics that you're curious about, but really just wanting to gather feedback so that we can continue to build out the podcast next year in a way that it meets you and resonates. Awesome. So if you're willing to take our survey, you can head to the show notes or go to onsiteworkshops.com slash survey. And we'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much. We've talked a lot about suffering, and I'd be curious if you could help people expand their mm-hmm. understanding understanding of suffering. Of suffering. I sure. don't. I would hate for anyone to listen to this conversation and think like, "Well, I haven't had X, Y, Z, so my life isn't suffering." Uh, I see. Um, yeah, I this see. hasn't happened to me, or my friend has it worse. And so, how do we give that self compassion to have a better understanding of what suffering is? I always think of Brene Brown saying, "Like comparative suffering doesn't." like serve anyone. Mm. So by you saying like, well, I haven't experienced X, Y, and Z, I think so often that's actually a misconception that keeps us locked up from finding healing because we're like, oh, it could be so much worse. And I think that is a lot of my own imprint growing up is that was how we moved forward. It could be so much worse. It could be so much worse. Uh And uh I think really letting things matter Mm -hmm. has been a big part of my own journey. So if you would expand suffering, I think even in the way that we expand Mm -hmm. trauma to be um, anything, anything less than, less than nurturing. nurturing. Yeah. yeah. So oh. what is suffering? Um, well, like, so suffering, thank you. That's a really beautiful question. I think that suffering is something that we all share in that it is like the, um, the mental process of the comparative, the comparative analysis mm-hmm. of my trauma is worse than others yeah. or others is worse than mine. Um, it's, it's a, could be denial, which could be Mm -hmm. like really subtle, like Mm. a subtle denial or big denial. 
uh, suffering could be, um, like I said earlier, like this state of being with my pain and this mm. belief that it's going to always be this way. Yeah. And so it can take a lot of forms, but it's like just how I think about it is like the second arrow. Like mm-hmm. anything that I, I'm first with my pain and then anything that comes after my pain, which, you know, suffering is just is going to happen. Yeah. You know, we're with pain. And of course, we believe that it's part of us believes a part believes that it's going to be this way forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But maybe it's that like how long you're with the suffering. Mm. Part of the work at Onsite is maybe managing and being aware of how long I keep myself there. Mm. Yeah. And any time that maybe I notice myself being in this space of denial or um, compare comparison, regardless of how long I spend, I spend there. I'm just compassionate towards mm. towards what I see. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a good explanation? Yeah, that's so I good. That. I think the word compassionate has come up a lot, and mm-hmm. gentleness I think is a really beautiful reframe for that and yeah. creating more space and understanding of it. Because I wonder what that looks like in practice. Um, Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. I know I can have a really harsh inner critic. And so quieting the things around me, taking away medicators, Mm -hmm. creating space to just be with myself. Sometimes Mm -hmm. that's the only voice you hear. And so how do we invite gentleness into the narrative? Sure. And to sit with us so that we can say, hey, it makes sense what you were doing. You were doing the best you could with what you had. Or, you know, how do we... Yeah. How do we get more gentle in those quiet spaces? Good question. And this first thought feeling came up for me was um, by example. Mm. So for me, you know, I I learned how to be gentle towards myself by seeing uh, and experiencing people being gentle with me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. maybe the first interaction I had was with my mom and the way that my mom mm-hmm. was able to be gentle with my stuff. But then, and then learning about the Buddha and learning the way the Buddha was gentle with his own stuff, but also other people's. And so I think these beautiful mirror neurons that we have um, are best taught through example. And so I think that that's, that's a finding a community, going to therapy. I mean, that's kind of like mm-hmm. the way a therapist is gentle with you and your mm-hmm. parts mm-hmm. is also modeling how you go home and you wake up in the, in the middle of the night with a panic attack or anxiety. Mm-hmm. How do I talk to this part that's suffering? And then if you do it often enough, you go, oh, I, I remember. Treat it with mm-hmm. gentleness, tenderness. Mm-hmm. You can have boundaries around it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can negotiate with it. And so that's that's how I think... I think that's how you learn. Also, I'll speak from personal experiences. My husband has, even just last night, um, I noticed a codependent part with a friend came up and disclosing to him like what was going on in my body and what the having the freedom to say to him, here's what my part is saying. Mm. Yeah. Um, and him just kind of telling the part, I hear you. Yeah. He, part I know that like I know the context at which you view the world that people are going to leave people are going to mm. hurt you mm. and it's okay and this friend isn't that mm. Mm. Um, but I see you yeah and so I that's yeah just from other people and then and then maybe continuing just to read and learn about it yeah. But, I, but I think that we learn so well experientially mm-hmm. so getting to experience it one-on-one is super important do you have any um, tips of how to invite that into your life? I think when I think about the few relationships that I feel that way around someone that is either 
being gentle with me um, or someone that can hold all those pieces, it's mm-hmm. very vulnerable, yeah. <laughs> like very mm-hmm. scary. Mm-hmm. And that's something I'm working on right now is like allowing myself to be gentle, like for someone else to see me that way yeah. or to call that out in me. Because mm-hmm. um, I think as someone who likes to be like tough and strong, it's sure. just, it's very vulnerable for someone to do that. And so I'm trying to foster even like asking for that mm-hmm. um, or even giving people permission to say like, Hey, it's okay to ask your partner, your loved one to say like, Hey, I don't need you to fix this. Can you just sit here with me and acknowledge that? But do you have any other tips of like how to invite gentleness in your community or in your relationship? Mm. <laughs> First thing that popped up is it helps when you've, when you have a partner who's been to therapy for a long time. And it's very important. Come on. <laughs> I mean, come on. Let's come go. on. Cause you're speaking the same language. You're speaking the same language and, and. Thankfully, Jake knows what to say and what not to say, yeah. even though he's not by no means perfect. But I mean, I think that's another advocate for doing your own work. I yeah. mean, we can't like force someone else to do it, but it does. Imp- that shows like how much it impacts your relationships. Oh, my gosh. Um, I always am just floored every time I interact with someone else who's gone to onsay. Like mm-hmm. I've been privileged enough to do a program and no matter if someone did a program five years before me, we now have the same set of tools. Yeah. And so if I sit down with someone who's been to the Living Center program as mm-hmm. well and have dinner with them, we're going to connect in a different way than me and a stranger. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I get a lead with that stranger in the way that I do. But having the same set of language and tools and understanding yeah. is really invaluable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and But that's such a good reminder for me that like doing my own work isn't yeah. just about me. It's about Ooh. how I'm showing up for other people. Because so many people come into the therapy world thinking it's selfish, thinking it's like, I'll go and something's wrong, quote unquote, wrong with right. me or whatnot. Um, or like they need to go or whatnot. But we need, we deserve to do this type of work because it allows us to show up for ourselves and for those that we love. And we can't yeah. really show up for those we love until we do it for ourselves. Yeah. Well, I think that's also rings true for like a mindfulness. Some of the theory behind mindfulness and compassion based practices is you are doing, if you can heal the inner storm of you, you can then uh, so much better manage the inner storm of mm. the person that is in front of you or the community mm-hmm. at large that's suffering, mm-hmm. but you have to start with you. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I completely advocate for dating someone or marrying (laughs) someone who's done the work. It doesn't make it easier. But I think to answer your question, what's another tool for navigating how to do that? One thing that I've been noticing come up in me a lot is like humility. Mm. So especially, you know, I can get in this space of judging myself harshly because I am a therapist and I've... Sure. Spent mm. thousands of hours in my own personal therapy. And so being this criti- inner critic yeah. wants to beat me up for still falling into these parts. Sure. It will always be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but having humility lately, like last night in that conversation with Jake, noticing this part really spinning out, feeling it in my body. Um, and it takes time, I think, to learn how the, how the parts tell you that they're there somatically yeah so noticing it and then watching the story that it was telling me and then stopping and it was (laughs) kind of naming out loud to Jake I I see what I'm saying and I know it's not fair but in this moment I feel like I can't help myself Mm. so just getting getting humble and Mm. kind of gently calling yourself out Mm -hmm. I think is very important and it doesn't have to be a rough you know violent calling out but Mm. just like I see the story that's playing out. It's mm-hmm. hurtful. When I'm plugged into my body, I also know that it doesn't feel good to be here or to yeah. say this. 
And then also kind of like handing it to Jake saying, help me help yeah. me with this. I, it's hard to hold this alone. Mm-hmm. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Mm. That humility piece is so beautiful. I think it's like often in my relationships, I've chosen, you know, very strategically to be like, can I risk? Can I risk in going first mm. and showing you gentleness mm. or... You know, will we reciprocate? Is this a space where that's allowed? And how do we start to navigate those waters? Because I think I read somewhere like the amount of hours it takes to go from like an acquaintance to a friend to a good friend to like, and it's a lot of time and it's messy and it doesn't happen overnight. And while I would like to wake up tomorrow and have a very large, great community of people who share the same language and have gone through this stuff like... It's the same thing with pain. You don't get to the other side of that without walking through it. Like mm. you have to be in the trenches with people. And so I think on one side of it, like that's something I see you do really well, Hannah. Mm. It's like it's something you're working on. And I know you're like trying to be seen as soft, but I watch you take moments to say, okay, can I risk out in this? And can I be vulnerable in this space? And people will tell you pretty quickly. And then instead of getting hard on yourself and saying, okay, well, I should never be you know, vulnerable again, just like, that's not a person to be vulnerable with. They don't, they mm-hmm. haven't earned the right to have my vulnerability. Yeah. So. No, what came to me was that secure attachment does take time, oh. but secure attachment also takes like trials and tribulations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like first I have to name that I, there is an unmet need. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. of like a, like a baby, like a crying baby. There's an unmet need there. Yeah. And just the consistent showing up to hold the baby and care for the baby and assume largely what they need mm-hmm. takes time years mm-hmm. years and so secure attachment just it does take time I, I'm learning that what you're saying is I'm mm-hmm. learning very much in my own personal friendships and what I'm also hearing from you is that secure attachment can be achieved and can happen even oh, if yes. we don't have that script in our stories mm-hmm. if we have anxious attachment or you know avoidant attachment like that we can write the path and we can create secure attachment with people yes absolutely that's great yeah I think we're all on the spectrum anyway mm-hmm. you know yeah. i think some people have leanings more towards avoidant or anxious or the the um where you have a bit of both yeah but it just takes just it just might mean that you just need more time insecure mm-hmm. attachment and and not to be a broken record but like therapy is a great way to relearn mm-hmm. secure attachment yeah. when you're in a space of dysregulation and someone just stays with you and that doesn't tell you what to do doesn't placate mm-hmm. and just says i see you this is hard what do you need so much of this conversation has been Time, time, yeah, yeah, like that. It just doesn't happen overnight. No, and I think inviting or give like a permission slip of like it's okay that it takes a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on permission of it's okay that you don't know mm. like that, and I think that goes along with it too. Of like it's okay that you don't know right now, yes. and I think that's the addendum that I've added. Like you can figure it out when you need to, yeah. and so. But I, I'm uncomfortable with that. I think yeah. mindfulness too is like, I'm not good at that. I can do it for two minutes. Like, I, you know, it's, yeah. A, yeah. it's okay that you can only do that right now. Mm-hmm. You know, there's room for growth. Yeah. And I think clients come in, we talk about mindfulness and they, they assume that it means meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us what, what define can mind- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Define it for us. Oh, I'll try. I'll try. So I think the difference is meditation is a formal sit down practice mm, yeah. where I am either led or self-led in prolonged stillness. Yeah. So like this morning I sat, I tried my best, I did a 20 minute sit with Jake 
And so that's like, it's, it's just more, uh, it's like a behavior. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness, mm-hmm. mindfulness is also a behavior, but mindfulness is more so just in the present moment, no matter what I'm doing, mm-hmm. I have this, I have this noticing, this tender noticing of what's going on. So that's the difference. Meditation is more like a formal sit. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness yeah. is, is just that. <laughs> In prepping for this, I quoted um, Orion, who's on our team. Hannah and I were talking about what we wanted to talk to you about and all of that. And I said, well, the other day, Orion said to me, mindfulness is just noticing something you didn't before. And I was like, oh, oh, I love that. <laughs> okay, I can be mindful at any moment. He was talking yeah. about having a moment of mindfulness at the top of a mountain. They did a hike and they all, he's like, we all took a moment to be mindful. And like, and you know, I, I've heard that mindfulness is just noticing something you didn't before. So I noticed the breeze and he's just... You know, oh. someone who's like very grounded in that, but it was really yeah. a beautiful picture and a, yeah. a different reframe for us. Yeah, I love it. I've never heard that. And I really like that. Thanks, Orion. I yeah. like that <laughs> idea. Um, I think I'm someone who's pretty high achieving mm-hmm. and really likes uh, setting expectations for myself, being able yeah. to accomplish something, being able to create whatever. And so the idea of like an interwoven all the time mindfulness thing is hard for me because I can't perfect it. I can't Mm -hmm. finish it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think uh, (laughs) probably like, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago, I got into the practice of meditation and I got good quote unquote at it because I like I'm like great I'm gonna do five minutes today I worked my way up to 20 minutes and then I worked whatever and then I would exit out and it was it was a great practice for me for that morning or for at night when I was going to bed or whatever but I wasn't implementing it into sure I'm sure it has side effects that were helping and informing (laughs) my everyday I think you know we are informed by what we do but I wasn't allowing it to be a teacher for me kind of throughout my living mm-hmm. I was just yeah. kind of letting it be like this thing I accomplished and like yeah. good on me hand that I I paused for 20 minutes you know yeah. and so I love the idea of mindfulness as being that we're not going to be mindful every second of every day but how can we invite that belief and that knowing to be ingrained in who we are yes. not just a I'm sitting on a in a chair for a half an hour. And that is a great practice. I love it. We practice meditation at onsite mm-hmm. every right. morning. Yeah, it's know, it's a really that. helpful tool. Yeah. But how do we not just let it be a tool, but a way, you know? Yeah, like mm-hmm. a lens of a lens of viewing the world. I yeah. was, what just came up for me too is that mindfulness is, is a beautiful lens, not only when you are in this state of suffering or pain, mm-hmm. but mindfulness is wonderful when you're feeling great joy yeah. and equanimity. Mm-hmm. And equanimity is, is also um, like a mindfulness-based term where it's, I hold all of the world's good with all of the world's bad mm-hmm. at one time. And so equanimity, equanimity. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So using mindfulness also when you're feeling really like when you're deeply in love Mm -hmm. and you're just noticing we're holding hands and feeling the warmth of my partner's hand and feeling safe. And, and maybe it's even more important to use mindfulness in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. A long time ago, someone told me that something about the brain holding onto happy memories, you really have to focus on it. You have yes. to pay attention to it in order for it to stick. And I don't remember mm. what the exact time was, but like 40 seconds of noticing or something like that. Because mm. wow. pain just it imprints on us. We we take that with us. The trauma, it sticks with us. We're reminded of it. But it's you have to practice mindfulness sometimes yeah. to make the joy stick, to make mm. the moments of good stick. And so I, I 
can't imagine a world where I would love to imagine a world where we paid attention to the joy as much as we paid attention to the hard. Because I think the world around us is obsessed with the hard and and that needs to be shown. It mm-hmm. needs to bring mm-hmm. suffering to light, pain to light. We need to do that because we need to look at it to heal. Yeah. But what if we also celebrated all the good and we also noticed all of the love and connection? Yeah. You're working against, I think we we're working against a negativity bias. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. we are, we are ingrained neurologically to notice yeah. the bad and the threat. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that worked for a very long time to keep us safe and still, yeah, does, yeah, it still does. But it's ingrained in us. It is. So you are working against something that is, that is neurologically imprinted sure. in you. And so if it's hard, that's why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but it's also neurologically ingrained in us to experience joy. Mm and um, peace and so it does take time yeah. and presence and intentionality to also walk that neural pathway hmm. that's beautiful I was talking about like why do I keep falling into these same patterns you know and someone brought up this analogy to me a you know about sledding and how you when you go down the same trail like just like you've been mm-hmm. on those hills where you immediately get like pulled into something where like this was not the path I was going on but it's so well worn that that's where I yeah. gravitated towards. And sometimes you have to make an unconscious effort to create a new path. Yeah. But the more we go down that path too, yes. even the joy path, we can, the gratitude path, the mindfulness exactly. path, the easier it is our body goes with it. And our then. body can start being pulled there. Yeah, mm. yeah. What came up for me, as you said, that was um, historically I have this part um, that I've done quite a bit of work on that loved to, uh, when it f- would feel threat, it would push people away. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But when I was down use your analogy like when I was riding down that trail it felt good Mm -hmm. because I was I was uh getting my needs met of not being uh left again Mm -hmm. and so like sometimes remembering that like you'll be on that sledding trail and you notice that it feels normal and it it felt good to get that angry and push people away there was something like really um like addictive about it yeah and so I think it's important to say like you when you do these behaviors that you know, it's not always going to be suffering sure. and pain. Sometimes you have to catch yourself like in that. And I think just honoring that and being compassionate of there's something about this behavior that is making you feel safe. It's It worked for you. There, safe. There's a reason that you did it. Yes. And it's not... I think um, Mark, one of our therapists, talks about how he's really grateful for drugs and alcohol. This is always the example I think of. And I always think, what? When he says that, it like kind of makes you jerk. And he's like, it worked long enough to keep me alive so that I could get to a place of recovery. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. That. And I think like, there's always a reason you're doing something, that behavior, and it feels good for a reason and it's serving a purpose. Mm-hmm. And now we just need to replace that with something else. That's beautiful. So, exactly that. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. I know. Mark, come on. I just adore Mark. Um, as we kind of wrap up, uh, we usually ask, what is one practice that keeps you centered? kind of give us a, a mindfulness practice that people could return to or maybe stop your car and and do that in this moment um, or whatever you're doing. I know a lot of people are doing dishes or doing some kind of other activities. So just creating some space mm. um, and helping people do that to just be present for a oh, little bit. I would love to do that. Let's do that. Okay. So maybe we'll preface by saying there's no wrong way to do this. That's really helpful. Yeah. Your job is just to notice what mm-hmm. comes up with tenderness. So I would say to anyone that's listening, us three are sitting here, um, sitting on comfy couches and chairs. So wherever you are, just find a posture that feels good. And we kind of say in in mindfulness, like an upright posture. And uh, 
hear these words of there's nowhere to go, nothing to do, just to be with me in this moment. And I want you to begin to notice your breath without maybe even noticing the desire to manipulate the breath. Just be with the breath as it is right now. Being with the snoring of the dog next to us. (laughs) (laughs) And then you can kind of expand that out into your body. Through this tender lens, can you notice what your body's holding? Whether that is ease or tension. As if you could say to the tension, I see you and you can exist here too. And then as you shift from the breath, let's kind of focus on some of the parts. First notice this part of you that is the core, that is curious, calm, courageous. Maybe in this moment, taking, taking a second to have gratitude for this self that guides you so nobly. And then through the lens of this core, can you come in contact with a part of you that is hard to be with? So maybe these parts that feel codependent, these parts that are critical. Notice as you bring that part into your awareness, your response to it. And regardless of your response to it, just saying it's okay, of course. And then lastly, what we can do is um, extend a thread of compassion to this part, saying, I see what you've done for me, or maybe I'm learning what you do Mm -hmm. for me. And hearing the words or saying to this part, I see you, I care for you, I honor you, and I am not the same as you. Hmm. And then just ending with three breaths. And coming to whenever you're ready. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for your practice. Mm, Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, you guys are wonderful, both of you. I have so much sweetness in Mm -hmm. my heart for both of you. So thank you for making this so comfortable. This was so fun. Yeah, this has been such a nice um, gift. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.